Ryan. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. That's right. But dear, I don't know. I think maybe we should move. We should move? So everybody else is like such interesting neighborhoods. Like, yeah. oh, look at this, the whole vibe here. We got blah, blah, blah. I'm tired. I'm tired of feeling so left out. Yeah. Because it's not not enough for you that we have... I'm just saying, like, what is even the, the neighborhood identity around here? You know, that's what we're missing. Well, people are very confused about that. Let's, <laughs> but, you know, we, we have some cool stuff around here. Yeah, like yeah. what? Well, Prove it's, it. It's, it's not where we live, but, like, not that far away is, is Prairie Avenue, and that's pretty cool. Well, what's so cool about it? <gasps> It was only, like, one of the the most, like, prestigious places to live in Chicago for a while. It was just, like, filled with mansions and, like, called, like, Millionaire's Row. Ooh. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty, pretty cool for a while there. <laughs> so that's what we're talking about today. Oh, wonderful. We're, we're going to talk about Prairie Avenue and some of, some of the houses mm-hmm. that exist there. Or existed most yeah. of the ones we're talking about still exist, but there are oh. a whole bunch that don't exist. Oh, Prairie Avenue mm-hmm. is is a street that oh. that runs north south, mm-hmm. uh, south of like downtown Chicago, the Prairie District, I guess. Which we're kind of going to be talking about for like houses that were there, these mansions mm-hmm. stretch a little bit off the street. It stretches to like Michigan Avenue and uh, Indiana Avenue and like. For many, many blocks, starting at, like, 16th and farther south. Right. So so if you're familiar with Chicago streets, gives you a little bit of an idea. Or if you have a map. Or a map. These, these names are on maps. The street that is now known as Prairie Avenue uh, was made along a Native American trail, like, mm-hmm. route, that, that went from, like, Fort Dearborn, which stood up at the Chicago River in Michigan, all the way down to, like, Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's a long street you got there. Well, like, the trail. I mean, uh-huh. the street doesn't go that far, but but apparently the street went ar- along this trail for a little bit. Mm-hmm. We, al- we also have the 1812 Fort Battle Fort Dearborn that occurred just, like, around the corner from the street. Mm-hmm. I talked about that thing. We haven't talked about yeah, that. Yeah, you talked about that in your things. Uh, so that was in this area. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the Battle of Fort Dearborn, also known as the Massacre of Fort Dearborn, uh, there there was uh, word of an attack on the fort from a coalition of Native Americans. They, they got word, people snuck out under cover of night, but were killed anyway. Yeah. Yep. So the, so there's now a nice, like... The little... evacuation was ambushed right in what is the Prairie District nowadays. Yeah, there's now a nice little park over there. When by the footbridge, it takes you over to the Mussolini Monument. So, you know. I think it mostly <laughs> takes people to the football stadium. <laughs> that too. That too. That's probably where they're going. Be, before the the Great Chicago Fire, mm-hmm. the, the city was expecting uh, a lot of residential growth in this area. Uh, so there were a lot of zoning changes that happened around like the 1850s. Okay. Um, to to prepare for what they thought was going to be a growth of 
people moving in. Uh, and they were correct, because by the time of the fire, the area already had some of the city's most elite, richest people mm-hmm. building there. And then more just came and came, because a lot of their houses burned down in the fire. Because oh. they lived, like, farther north right, right. where the fire hit. From the late 1870s to, like, 1890s, the area boomed. And there were f- over 50 mansions being built within this stretch of road. Right. The The guidebooks for the 1893 World's Fair actually said it was the most expensive street west of Fifth Avenue. So if you were, like, the, the wealthiest of the wealthy in Chicago... You wanted to live on in this area. You wanted to build your McMansion. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of short-lived. <laughs> because shortly after, the the rich started moving north again uh, to the Gold Coast of Chicago. There was a lot of building happening there. And uh, there was slowly a push of like industry coming into the area. More Wh- which where- area? The, the Prairie Avenue area. Okay. So there were more like warehouses and factories being built around it. Large amounts of printing and publishing um, automobile in- industries. Hence, Motor Row existing slightly farther down. Mm-hmm. Where there's still quite a few um, like historical car dealerships. <laughs> when they like car dealerships uh-huh. were like buildings. Uh-huh. Some of those still exist farther farther down from this area. So with all this stuff moving in, the wealthy started to get out, and uh, the the area had a very short lived like the, the heyday did not last forever. It did not last. Uh, in 1898, the Chicago Tribune actually said that Prairie Avenue was undesirable for those who could afford it, and unaffordable for those whom desired it. So like just like that is that is a 20 year changeover real quick there. <laughs> So, of these 50-plus mansions that existed, most were torn down or fell into disrepair, and there's a little over a handful left Uh that still exists. One and a half hands full. Yeah. Uh, So, we're going to talk about a few of the places that still exist. Okay, cool. Uh, A few of which are, like, really cool. (laughs) So, first we're going to talk about the Glesner House. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Glesner House is located uh, at 18th and Prairie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was designed from like 1885 to 1886 and completed in 1887. Henry Hobson Richardson designed it. He is the one who designed Trinity Church in Boston. I among love other things. Trinity Church in Boston, yeah. among other things. But like, yeah, that place is amazing. It's considered actually his finest urban residence oh. that he ever did. Congratulations. Uh, so he was developing what is now known as the Richardsonian Romanesque style. It's so, a pretty cool coincidence that this guy Richardson worked in a Richardsonian style. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if he ever thought that was weird. He, he probably thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. So he's taking elements from... European Romanesque architecture, and then, like, adapting it for American ideas. How's it crazy? Um, it has, <laughs> like, such an innovative, like, plan and design. Mm-hmm. You've walked past this place. I've walked past it, yes. Okay, so looking at it from the outside, it just seems like a freaking fortress. <laughs> like, some medieval fortress. That's all you see, and you're like, how does this exist here? What is this? Mm-hmm. It's it's there in case the factory workers want an extra quarter per hour. (laughs) So the the walls 
are pushed to the property line. Mm-hmm. But it's not all, like, house. Oh. Um, they pushed the walls, and they created a private courtyard. Mm-hmm. And the house is apparently shaped actually more like an E. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is courtyard, even mm-hmm. though it takes up a full, like, rectangular lot. Are we ca- talking, like, capital E? Capital E. Okay. Capital E. And this was done so that they could have a private courtyard in a more urban setting. Natural light could enter the windows because of how it was shaped like this E. Mm-hmm. It was all these different angles that could come through the courtyard. But then they had the privacy because they had less windows facing the streets. Right. They also had, like, a servant hallway that ran along, like, 18th Street. So that way there was, like, a buffer between the busy street to keep out, like, the wind, extra noise, dust from the house. Let the servants have the wind, extra noise, and dust. Yes. Okay, cool. Yes, yes, you know. Um, So the design is, like... Absolutely different from every other house that was built in the area. Every other house being built at, like, the time. Mm-hmm. Very different from the traditional, like, turn-of-the-century Victorian mansions that we think of. You're going to get the Homeowners Association <laughs> on your butt for that. <laughs> George Pullman. Uh-huh. Of the, like, Pullman... Trains. Trains. Yeah. Yeah. So he lived across the street. Oh. Uh, he, w- he was one of the owners of another mansion. And he apparently said that he didn't know what he did in the world to deserve having this house staring at him every time he went outside. <laughs> I, I bet you can find plenty of people <laughs> saying exactly what George Pullman did to deserve that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure there could be answers out there. Just going to put the Pullman strike on my to-do list. <laughs> But that was the impression neighbors had of this place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the house is very large. It's 1,700 square feet. It had, like, three bedrooms for family, two for guests, and then eight for servants. Mm-hmm. Eleven fireplaces, like, seven different staircases. And a partridge in a pear tree. Well, and it was wired for electricity. Oh. <laughs> a good six years before electricity was in the neighborhood. So it actually had to run on gas until, like... The neighborhood caught up with them. It's smart, I guess. That's the way to do it. What is also interesting is the family who live there. I'm going to guess the Glessners. Yeah. 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 Uh, So John Jacob Glessner uh, was a partner in a farm machinery manufacturing company Mm -hmm. uh, that was in Ohio. And he married uh, Francis Macbeth and they... (laughs) Never marry a lady named Macbeth. You are tempting fate. (laughs) So they moved to Chicago in 1870, and he opened a branch of the office there. And uh, apparently he wanted a simple, comfortable home that was very cozy, what they were, like, used to back home. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's what it is on the inside, but from the outside, I'm really not sure that's what he got. <laughs> but apparently they liked it because they lived there for 50 years. Sure, As sure. everyone else left, they stayed. So in 1902, uh, his firm and four others, uh, including ones that were like controlled by J.P. Morgan and Cyrus McCormick, mm-hmm. um, all merged. And they created the International Harvester, which is now Navistar International Corporation. It's the fourth largest corporation in the country. Um, he became vice president until he died at 92 in 1936. And they they got a lot of money. They, yeah. They, they did well. 
Uh, he is buried in Graceland Cemetery, which we talked about in the Spookums episode a bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, along with his wife, Frances. Uh, now, when he died, the house was given to the American Institute of Architects. Um, but they returned it a year later as they couldn't afford to, like, keep up with everything. Well, it's not the American Institute <laughs> of Handymen. Yeah. They're like, we don't have the money for this. <laughs> we uh, can design a house, but, like, repairing it? You <laughs> want the American Institute of Contractors, maybe? So then after they gave it back, it was given to Armor Institute, which I believe was the, like, what the Illinois Institute of Technology now is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they had it for a while, and then in 1945, they leased it to the Lithographic Found, or Lithographic Technological Foundation, which used it to conduct research on printing, which mm-hmm. goes with, like, the printing business in the area. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they put large printing presses in all the rooms, basically. <laughs> uh, and then in the 60s, the house was threatened for demolition. Uh, in 1966, the Chicago Architecture Foundation was founded the- to save the house. Whoa. Re- yeah. Really? Yeah. So they were founded as the Chicago School of Architecture Foundation. And literally the only reason they were initially founded was to save this house. Gentlemen, that was their thank purpose. You. Thank you for coming to the, our inaugural <laughs> meeting. We have one item on the agenda. It's this house. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that That is why they exist (laughs) uh so they were able to purchase it and save it um so over the years since then the the house has been restored Uh, many of the original furnishings have been returned by uh descendants Mm -hmm. uh and it now operates as a museum and event space you can get married there you can it's so expensive (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you can also you can also go do tours of the place. Mm-hmm. We we missed out on tickets to do the thirty three World's Fair house tours. Yeah, but these they do all the time. They do it all the time every week, every multiple week. times a week. So it still stands. It still stands. It's still there. Uh, and I actually uh, want to talk about some more of the family of this house. Okay, because I think some of the coolest stuff out of historical houses that end up getting saved is. Sometimes what you learn about the people who live there. Yeah, people generally do more things than houses. Yes, I mean, like, houses can be really cool. (laughs) But it's kind of amazing when you start to look at, like, oh, like, let's take a peek at this house. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, that person did this. And the Architectural Foundation was founded and this for this. And it just keeps going. Tell me about these rich weirdos. Well, I want to talk about Mrs. Glesner. Francis. Formerly Ms. Macbeth. Yes. She is a pretty cool lady. Um, so a few u- unique things about her. She apparently kept a daily diary for 40 years, starting in 1879, mm-hmm. uh, about everything that was going on. She was known for um, exquisite needlework, uh, being a seam- seamstress, a knitter, and a silversmith. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's said that she knitted over 500 sweaters. <laughs> Being a, okay, knitting, needlework, sewing, these are all things that one does in their living room. Yeah. Silversmithery. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to get there. <laughs> so, first off, with the knitting. Uh-huh. They say she knitted over 500 sweaters, which she gave away and to people. And never got worn again. <laughs> no one ever wears a hand-knit sweater. No. Well, back then, they were like, hand-knit. That's what sweaters were. 
and they still had one sleeve way longer than the other, and this weird <laughs> lump. Hey, if she knits 500 by, like, number 200, she knows what she's doing. <laughs> okay? Um, but yeah, so she studied uh, silversmith work with um, a few well-known, like, Chicago silversmith people. Uh-huh. Uh, one of being Annabelle, Annabelle Fogliata, um, who was a master jewelry maker uh, at Hall House. And Madeline Yale Wynn, who was a very well-known Chicago silversmith. So, like, if you found their their trademark and went on Antiques Roadshow, they'd be able to spin you a yarn. I guess. That you could turn into 500 sweaters. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, So, Frances ended up setting up a workspace in the house, in the basement, (laughs) and she produced numerous pieces down there. A lot of them apparently incorporated bees because she was also into, like, beekeeping. (laughs) This woman did, like, she just had so many hobbies. Um, but she was also the co-founder of the Chicago Chamber Music Society and, like, was involved with, like, dozens of other organizations mm. of cultural significance. You gotta keep your ladies occupied in yeah. those days or else they'll start trying to vote. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they had a few children. Mm-hmm. Uh, their son, George. Not really a lot to say about George. He was, like, <laughs> in poor health. Oh. Uh, often as a child, so he was tutored at home. Little sickly Giorgio. Um, doctors suggested that they move away in the summer during, like, hay fever season so he could, like, have some better health. So mm-hmm. they built an estate in New Hampshire in 1884 as well. You know what New Hampshire doesn't have? Pollen. None of it. <laughs> anywhere. Um, and then there was their daughter, Frances Glesner Lee. She was born in 1878, and she also had poor health as a child and was tutored at home. Now, her life, like, started pretty typical for mm-hmm. people at the time. You know, she didn't attend college, but she t- traveled Europe. She married, had children. Um, but she and her husband ended up divorcing. Uh, in 1938, she, she ended up moving uh, into a house on that New Hampshire estate. She had a very big interest in forensic Pathology, And that's why we have the television show Bones. <laughs> it's based on her. But she's very discouraged from following it. Mm-hmm. Uh, after her brother's death, around 1930, she started taking her first steps towards a career in it when she was 52 years old. <laughs> um, and she had inherited the Harvester fortune it's, around this time. It's never too late. So, no, it's not. Like, she, she is, she proves that. <laughs> Uh, so she had long been friends with uh, George Burgess McGrath, uh, who was a classmate of her brother's and had studied medicine. Um, and they remained close until his death in 1938. Now, he had become the chief medical examiner in Boston, and together they lobbied to have coroners replaced by medical professionals. Who were coroners up until this time, if not medical professionals? I, I think they just weren't trained as much in, mm-hmm. like like medicine and the body maybe <laughs> well it's not like you're gonna heal anybody in that show. yeah for for the most part they were just instead of being like trained as doctors or to understand the human body mm-hmm. or trauma they were more just police like detectives mm-hmm. investigators not they didn't have more medical training than any other cop right so they didn't have 
But it seems like they probably should, because it's like, you gotta specialize. Maybe, maybe, maybe. So good job, Francis Jr. In addition to that, uh, with her money that she Mm -hmm. got. uh, More money than God. Yeah. uh, She endowed the Harvard Department of Legal Medicine in 1931. uh, The first department of such in the country. Uh, She also... uh, helped uh, create the Harvard Associates in Police Science, which was a national organization to further forensic science. Mm -hmm. And also a very big library there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In the 40s and 50s, uh, she began hosting seminars in homicide investigation. Uh, And these were actually for detectives and investigators and people in the field. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, So they came for a week-long conference and were presented with the nutshell studies of unexplained death. (laughs) That's what they were called. And these these were... That sounds like a lovely parlor game. So these were... It's like a murder mystery that your friend puts on just because they're afraid people won't actually talk at a dinner party. Yeah. So these were incredibly detailed dioramas that she constructed of crime scenes. (laughs) Everybody Um, needs a hobby. There were 20 models based on real cases, uh, cases that were known to be challenging, and they were designed to test um, people's ability to collect all the evidence. Mm -hmm. And they were made from like a one inch to one foot scale, and they were insane. Like they had working lights and doors, mousetraps, Rocking chairs, real food. Tiny mousetraps. Yeah. Like one twelfth scale, my word. Yeah. Um, You know, like, the bodies were painted to show different points of decomposition. And Mm -hmm. and, um, they cost $3,000 to $4,500 to make each one. (laughs) They were called the nutshell studies as the purpose of forensic investigation is to it's said, at least, is to convict the guilty, clear the innocent, and find the truth in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. That's why she got that name. Um, I would love to see these uh, displayed alongside the fairy house that's yeah, in. Uh, yeah. Or maybe just put the dead bodies in the fairy castle yeah. at, at MSI. Yeah, it'd be something. I mean, it's just, it's... I guess the scale's a bit off. It's not one to twelve. Yeah. Well, she would, like, even go to, like, autopsies mm-hmm. to, like, study things before she put it in her diorama because she wanted it to be that correct. And um, Just goes to show rich people can do anything they want. Well, and these these are actually, like, still used today mm-hmm. um, in some – at the, the organization that now, like, owns them um, still uses them in trainings uh, as a way to, like, kind of start – studying techniques of observation it's Mm -hmm. she was on to something yeah i wonder if they do that in like vr now (laughs) as vr is like detailed though as like her dioramas because they sound really detailed (laughs) strap an oculus on your face and go collecting digital evidence um anyways for her work she she was made an honorary captain in the new hampshire State Police in 1943, mm-hmm. uh, and this made her the first woman to join the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And she never had to pay a speeding ticket again for the rest of her <laughs> life. And I mean, that's just like, granted, like this didn't happen like 
here in Chicago, but it's right. such a crazy, amazing thing. Mm-hmm. And she did so much, so much with it at such a later age in life. Right, right. Good for her. Like, forget Bones. She inspired Murder. She wrote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it it wouldn't be a history episode without a ghost. So we gotta talk I about we is. gotta talk about some ghost ghost stories. Ghost stories. Richardson, the architect, mm-hmm. died three weeks after completing the house, <laughs> and a lot of people say. That because he, like, loved this house so much... I'm glad someone does. It was a house that he said, like, he he would want to live in. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That that his ghost walks the halls. (laughs) Well, I'm not living, but close enough. (laughs) And with that, I think we're going to take a break. (laughs) We'll be right back. About a whole district of historical houses. Yes. And by whole district, just one house, really. I don't I don't know. We're gonna talk about a few others. Prove it. Okay, well I don't have as much detail about a few of these, but there's still some other houses that still exist mm-hmm. in the area. There is the uh Marshall Field Junior Residence. <laughs> That's the, the, the heir to the department store. Mm-hmm. Marshall Field also lived in the area. But their that mansion is demolished and gone. Well, yeah, it'd just be gauche to have two together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they both existed like at the same time. I, it was gauche back then, and they fixed it. <laughs> so, so the uh, Marshall Field Junior House is twenty four thousand square feet. Really? Yeah. We don't even have one. <laughs> I know. We don't even have. A thousand square feet in this place. Uh, and it had a 6,000 foot carriage house. Them horses live better than us. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Marshall Field Jr. Mm-hmm. Actually died in his house. He was shot by one of them horses. Maybe. That could be another theory. Oh, I jumped the gun. You didn't say that he got shot yet. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he got shot. By one uh, of those horses. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, he he died November 22nd, 1905. Now, newspapers at the time say that he uh, accidentally shot himself while cleaning his gun. Mm-hmm. But people love great stories, and there's <laughs> many a story about what actually happened. Um, the, the major story people like to tell... Is that 58 years and one day later, Doctor Who premiered on BBC One. <laughs> It's true, though. (laughs) The story is that uh, he was a regular at the Everly Club brothel, which uh, was several blocks away on Dearborn Street because we are also very close to a historical vice district. You think maybe that's what chased the the rich people away? I mean, that was their, like... Or maybe it's what invited them. That started, like, before they started moving here. (laughs) And it just kept going. So it, it actually sits where the uh, Hillard Towers are, uh, Cermak, 
Okay. There's like those those two very large towers that kind of sit separate from everything else. It's more of a, a housing project styled place. Oh, we're talking like Cermak and State ish. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but and then like Dearborn's farther. It's yeah. like over there, like on the farther west side. Okay. Of those places. And that's where the the, the brothel. The brothel in question was. was. Yes. Some say that he was shot by. Someone from the brothel, either mm-hmm. because he was, like, a dispute in gambling or, like... Other business? Foreplay? Foreplay? That's what, like, I read. Like, during foreplay, I was like, who shoots someone during foreplay? That's some kinky business. <laughs> Not sure that's exactly what they meant. I think they might have, like, worded things poorly, but... Anyways, however he was shot there, it's like, they're like, yo, he didn't want people to know he was there. It really and he's depends like, I'm on shot. where the wound was. Well, he's like, I'm shot, but I'm okay, so I'm just going to go home so no one finds out about this. And then he died. <laughs> um, others say that maybe it was suicide from depression. Mm-hmm. Or again, a horse. Oregon horse, one of his horses was Only like... Only 6,000 feet. Why do you get 24,000? This is not fair. I have twice as many legs. <laughs> I deserve some square footage, sir. It's a very uppity horse. Uh, so in the early 1900s, uh, the, the house became like a sanatorium, then a nursing home, and then it sat vacant for 40 years. Absolutely nothing happened in there. Mm-hmm. It was only uh, very recently, like within the last 10 years, uh, that it was rehabbed and it is now six private multi-million dollar condos <laughs> um, or like townhomes. But it still exists. There you it go. It is still there. It's much different on the inside now, but it is there. What happened to the horse house? Oh, I don't know, actually. I don't know if the the, the coach house is like was kept. Turned that into one and a half uh, multi-million dollars. It, it might have been converted into <laughs> use. I'm not sure. That one still stands. There's also uh, two houses that still stand. Uh, the William Wallace Kimball House, which was built uh, in 1890 to 1892 for a million dollars by a piano manufacturer. <laughs> uh, and the Kalman Ames Mansion. Uh, both of which are like across from the Glesner House and is where the national headquarters for the United Soccer Federation are. I've always been curious, what do they do? Like, do they manage the, the national team or do they manage some sort of like league and, and amateur soccer play? So I, I believe they are an organization that works to like enhance and like grow soccer in the country <laughs> and they work a lot in like underserved communities mm-hmm. to like bring like soccer to children and communities and enrich like programmings that already exist. Well, good luck to them. It's sort of an uphill battle compared yeah. to every other country in the world. Yeah, yeah. We need I guess we need another like bend it like Beckham to get people excited. <laughs> like the movie. Where's the American bend it like Beckham? Is that like switching goals with the Olsen twins? Oh, goodness, no, it's, no. No, it wasn't. I mean, not on the same scale, but I watched that as a kid. It's only, like, an American soccer movie I can think of. Well, there's also Ladybugs with Rodney Dangerfield, but I, <gasps> I wouldn't inflict that, that, that on anyone either. Jonathan Brandis in it. All right, uh, next episode, the biography of Jonathan Brandis. 
I'm going to cry. Yeah. I'm going to cry about that. <laughs> so anyways. Anyway. There's also the the uh, Harriet F. Reese house, mm-hmm. which um, was in the 18, it was built in the 1880s. James H. Reese was like a city surveyor in like 1930 or 1836. And Three years after the town was founded. That's yeah. a very early city survey. There's a lot of surveying to be done in those days. Yeah, yeah. So he married uh, his wife Harriet in 1844. And he began a real estate business. <laughs> are and you, then Are you allowed to own a real estate business when you're the surveyor? Well, I mean this is like That seems like this cheating. This is like eleven years later. He's probably not the surveyor anymore. Alright. Um, okay. And then in eighteen eighty he he died in their Wabash Avenue home. Oh. So Harriet, at the age of seventy one, in eighteen eighty eight, bought the last open lot on Prairie Avenue. The, and she built a house there uh, for $20,000. And then she died there in 1892. Oh, well. Did not last very long. No. After her death, the, the house was bought and sold several times. Became a boarding house for a while in the 20s. And then in 2007, it was added to the list of historical places. Now, this is that house that when McCormick Place uh, was looking to expand their hotels and the DePaul Arena was looking to get property, uh, it was threatened by demolition. Because it was in the way. Yes, because it sat on a basically completely vacant block. It was very Tim Burton-y. It's just this skinny little house Uh with nothing. Yes, because when it was built, it was built also like between other houses. So it was Mm -hmm. built like a row house. Where it's just built right up next to something. The sides aren't decorative. There's not like right. side land. And then those houses went away. Everything else was demolished. And then this <laughs> house just sits there. It was incredible. It it was the strangest thing to walk by. And I loved it. Um, I wish it could have just sat there. Or they could have like built up around it. Like, <laughs> But luckily it was saved. Um, it was actually moved uh, about... Well, it was moved a couple blocks away and is now safe. Um, when they moved it, it was actually um, apparently one of the heaviest buildings moved in the United States. Huh. Um, I guess because of the stuff within it, how high it is. I'm glad people keep records of how heavy the houses right? they move are. So we, so we have this fact. Yeah. So I'm really glad that house still exists because I always really liked it. Mm-hmm. Are you it is currently at 2017 South Prairie. Yes. So it just moved a block north. Block north, yeah. So now it's next, I believe it's right next to like some other houses. So like there's stuff on that block. It won't get demolished anytime soon. <laughs> but it won't look as cool and lonely. It was so, it was so insane to walk by. I know I have pictures of it somewhere mm-hmm. just standing alone on that block. And now instead there's like the stupid arena that, <laughs> ugh. But... Couple more houses. Couple more houses. Couple more houses. So there is also uh, the Keith House, uh-huh. which uh, it does a lot of work with its cousin, <laughs> the Kyle House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, I love those guys. Yeah. Well, the Keith House sits uh, very close to the Glesner House. There's a park with between the two, um, and this is like my dream house. <laughs> <laughs> I like love this house so. Much. So it was built in 1870 
For Elbridge Gary Keith, um, he and his brothers grew one of the largest millinery uh, firms in the entire country. So hats. Hats. They were hat men. They were hat men. It was one of the largest. Big hats. Um, So the house is built on a double lot that is extra deep. (laughs) Um, And it was built by John W. Roberts. It's, It's so incredibly large. And it is incredible. Much like their hats. Um, so it's this huge lot. So they were able to, like, build the house wider. Mm-hmm. It also has, like, a huge backyard. And then it has a giant car- carriage house. It is all <laughs> still there, which is very rare. Like, a lot of these houses have lost, like, their carriage houses or, like, their lots have been s- made mm-hmm. smaller. Because no one has carriages. Yeah. 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 After... Um, Keith's death, his wife continued to live there for a while, and then it was sold in the 20s. Uh, it then was used in the 30s as a for a publishing company uh, and offices up until, like, the 70s. Then it was bought by um, Wilbert Hasbrock, who was actually involved in some of the efforts to save the Glesner house. He was an architect. He just loves the neighborhood. Um, so he and his wife actually opened a bookstore in there for a while, <laughs> and it also continued to have offices. Uh, in 1978, it was sold, um, and extensive restoration work began, mm-hmm. and it became an art gallery. And then the coach house was actually used to board horses for, um, like, one of like, the carriage companies that, oh, like, uses... that do, like, the, the, the carriage tours. Yeah. yeah. Um, My first guess was going to be police horses. <laughs> No, okay. Um, yeah, so they boarded the horses there, and I guess, like, um, staff for the horses lived, like, above. <laughs> In the old-fashioned style. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't actually until 1999 that the co- coach house was renovated um, mm-hmm. from actually being a coach house into a single residential unit. After a lot of Febreze. Yeah. <laughs> Just buckets of the stuff. Um, and the main house currently functions for special events. Now, this house recently went on sale. <laughs> Mm-hmm. If anyone out there has three million dollars, they want to give me this is like my dream house. <laughs> and have us get killed by property taxes. It's like the most beautiful place ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but we actually have... no. We could just rent it out to someone who can actually afford the place. We'll live in the carriage house. We'll live in the carriage house, and they can just pay for everything else. Yeah, yeah. We will join the bourgeoisie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The last house we're going to talk about. So this this predates the the housing boom of mm-hmm. Prairie Avenue and everything. Ooh, this predates a lot of things. Uh, it is the oldest surviving building in the original Chicago city limits. <laughs> uh, it was built in 1836. That does predate everything we've been saying. My yes. word. Now, if you look at current city limits it would not be considered the oldest but that's because of a long history of annexation and yes and border expansion like what would be considered the oldest now within city limits wasn't built um or was built but not even a part of chicago until like 1874 right so this place is called the clark house and it was built in 1836 by Henry Brown Clark. I would love it if one of these houses was named as, like, the Jones House, built uh, for Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Just yeah. throw everybody yeah. off. Yeah, It'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> it was built by him and his wife, Caroline Palmer Clark. 
Uh, They were a merchant couple from upstate New York. Now, it was built in the Greek Revival style on 20 acres of land near Lake Michigan, around South Michigan and 17th Street. Not where it currently stands. And we're going to get to why is where it is now. (laughs) Uh, Because currently it is over uh, along Indiana. And between Indiana and Prairie, uh, past 18th Street. So a very different place. This was built very much before Chicago became like the epicenter of architecture. Right. It was very much before Chicago was a lot of things. <laughs> when when they built this place, their closest neighbor was apparently up at Madison Street, which was 17 blocks, <laughs> 17 current blocks away. It's two, really far. Two miles. Yeah. Two miles two from mile, the nearest neighbor. Two miles away, yeah. Uh, on 20 acres, like... That mm-hmm. is insane. Mm-hmm. The amount of property they have. I wish I, I'd love to see like a property map of like what those right. twenty acres yeah, were. Yeah. The entire near south side. Yeah. Well, I'd love to know like how it stretched. Did it like right, was it just yeah. like very square? Did it go like in different directions? I'd love to know. So after uh, Henry died in eighteen forty nine, uh, Caroline lived there until eighteen sixty, but she sold all but three acres of the original land so she could pay for stuff. And I'm sure she flipped all that for a profit. Yes. I mean, as, as the city boomed in the mid-1800s. Exactly. So in 1872, uh, I think they like rented it out for a while, and then it was finally uh, bought by the Krim family who moved... <laughs> a crime. They bought by the crime family. Like, the, the family surname crime yeah. or a crime family? No, like, surname. Okay. Surname. Wow. I would. <laughs> I'd go down to the courthouse if I yeah. were you. So they actually were the ones to move the mm-hmm. house. Oh. They did not move it to the location it's currently in. Huh. They moved it um, actually 28 blocks south and one block west to 4526 South Wabash, which was in the township of Hyde Park. Yeah, that's really far. Mm-hmm. Uh, The reasons for moving it were that, first off, the house was already considered quite a landmark at the time, so they didn't want to just, like, destroy it. Mm -hmm. Um, But they were raising a family. There were fears of another Chicago fire happening. There was concern about, like, coal and dust of industry in the city when trying to Mm -hmm. raise children. So they wanted to move it farther away. Honey, we got to pack the bags. We got to get out to Hyde Park. (laughs) I will do you one better. (laughs) Pack the whole house. Whole house. Three generations lived in the house as new location until 1941. Uh, the family at this time tried to get the city to buy the house, to take it on. Because they're like, this is historically significant. At this mm-hmm. point, it is already over 100 years old. And nothing else in the city could really say that. No. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They definitely saved this house from, like, probably demolition of where it yeah, used yeah. to stand. With especially like the the housing boom that was happening in the area, right? All all these people would have wanted to knock it down to build their carriage houses. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They continued to live there, but the city didn't want to buy it at the time. Um. So the Saint Paul Church of God in Christ bought the house. Mm-hmm. Um. At the time, uh, they had Bishop Henry Lewis Ford, who is the namesake of the Bishop Ford Freeway. <laughs> And so they they bought the house and the land, and they built a church on the land next to the house, and they used the house for 
offices, school stuff, social events. Mm-hmm. Um, and they knew, like, this house is old. This is historically significant. So they did their best to keep the upkeep as much as they could. Right. But eventually they wanted to use the land for other things. They wanted to continue to expand what their church could offer. Um, so at this point, they did get the city to purchase the house in 1972. Come on. <laughs> Please. So the city wanted to move it back to its neighborhood, the neighborhood it came from. Uh, now, at this point, there was no way to move the house back without encountering the l tracks, which did not exist at the time that it was originally moved. Mm-hmm. Um, and the house could not fit under them. I know one way to fix that. Really big stilts. Yeah. You go well, over it. Well, so they, they did, uh, you know, pass around a lot of ideas. They thought, like, maybe we could slice the house. Maybe we could lift it by helicopter. Maybe we could move some of the tracks. Maybe dig under the tracks. But no, they, they went with the lifting over. Really big stilts. Um, On December 4th, 1977, they used hydraulic jacks to lift it up over the tracks at um, where 44th Calumet and Prairie Avenue, like, meet. Mm-hmm. Once it was up and over, it was so cold, the, like, lift froze, and they couldn't lower it. Uh-huh. And they actually had to wait until December 28th to be able to lower it the 27 feet back down to the ground and then, like, continue on their way. I'd like to announce my upcoming one-act play about the family that lived in the house on Jack's for two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Where it sits now is actually uh, inside the Chicago Park District's Chicago Women's Park and Gardens, which is a beautiful park that is very much like a Victorian backyard. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Glesner House sits on one side, the Keith House on another, and the Clark House is within. So this, it's also about, like, one block down and one block over from where it, like, originally was. It it got pretty close. It got close. It got close. If I threw a boomerang all the way to Hyde Park and it came back one block away, I'd be very proud of myself. Yeah. Well, they, they made sure it, like, faced the lake because that's how it was originally, like, situated. Ah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's gone through an extensive amount of restoration. Um, shortly before it moved, actually... A fire happened in the basement. Oh, no. Um, And there was a lot of damage to woodwork, but they actually uh, believe that the amount of layers of paint helped (laughs) save a lot of the house because it had to burn through so much before it could char things. Um, So they did a lot of restoration to the fire damage. There was also a lot of stuff done because now it is a museum and there's a lot of things they have to do to make it a public museum. Mm-hmm. So reinforcing things, adding security, fire safety, bathrooms, etc. So um, and there was also... Yeah. What happens when there's like a conflict between the uh, accuracy requirements of being a, a historical site and the like public safety requirements of trying to open as a public museum? I think you try to hide a lot of those things behind the walls. <laughs> we yeah, we we need it's a lot uh, of steel reinforcement behind the wallpaper. We need air conditioning, but we cannot have an elevator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There has been some interesting things uh, over the years that it's been there, like a lot of continuing kind of investigation. 
So they did, like, restore it to the, like, 1850-1860 state, because that's when Mm -hmm. the family had, like, the most resources to, like, update and, like, furnish the place. Um, But there was, like, a lot of debate on kind of what was original to that time. Yeah. Um, Some of the stuff to do with, like, the porches. I don't know what the actual name is, but, like, almost, like, pillory top things of the house. I'm going to go out on a wild limb here. And say that the electrical outlets were not accurate to that time. <laughs> yeah, those weren't. <laughs> well, one thing, like, the originally they thought only, like, one of the porches, like, existed. But it was more recently that they um, found, like, document, like, letters or receipts or something that showed the family ordered, like, the other porch to be built around this time. So then oh. they, like, added it on yeah, yeah. later. You can never have too many porches. It's absolutely amazing, like, the oldest structure in Chicago Mm -hmm. just sits in this park. (laughs) And, like, I go to this park. I've been to this park. I see, like, people just, like, chilling on its porch. And I'm like, do you realize what you're sitting on? (laughs) (laughs) Do you realize? This isn't just, like, a pretty house built for a park. This is, like, history. And then they show Finding Nemo on an inflatable screen, and there's... The Cheesy's food truck. Yeah. The end. The end. That's that's uh, some of the info about the Prairie Avenue. Yay, Prairie Avenue. Things that still exist. Things mm-hmm. that you can go, like, see. Mm-hmm. So did you learn anything? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's always interesting walking, you know, through there, around there, uh, because so much of the modern stuff is built to look mm-hmm. like this 1870s thing when you know from from hearing the story of the the houses that were built then they weren't nearly as uniform it sounds oh, like oh no they were very different from each other. <laughs> well, and like there was a certain style mm-hmm. but they weren't identical looking I mean, right 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 houses of that time period i feel like had such character compared to houses that are built like now, you these being very wealthy people, they they would get the the biggest name architect they could find. Yes, who would in turn make a statement. Yeah, and it was yeah. all about like the details of the windows and the decorative stuff and the porch and which I I, I know they like the the stuff that's modern that they try to make blend in like doesn't have that. <laughs> like even though they try to copy, it just does not hit the same marks Mm -hmm. and you can really tell what's actually old and what's not (laughs) the variable history of preservation because like we we talked about what five six houses Mm -hmm. out of 50 incredible mansions yeah there's 45 mia here that that got torn down for one reason or another yeah there's like one or two more that also still exist there's like one that is like a bed and breakfast Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm sure all of those were just as worthy, and it makes me wonder, like, did they have failed uh, attempts at, at preservation? Mm-hmm. Or were they just unlucky and nobody even tried, and the ones we have just sort of got passed over until the time was right for people yeah. to be interested in preservation? The um, Glesner House actually has a really great blog, mm-hmm. and they have quite a lot of posts about, like, the history of the area and other houses in the area. And um, there was one post I was looking at that had, I think it was from the was it 
eighties, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was pictures around the neighborhood and just like seeing like, well, this is where this very rich person, I can't remember which one, <laughs> but like where their mansion stood. Chris himself. It's now um auto garage mm-hmm. or this is where this stood and it's a printing manufacturer warehouse like just mm-hmm. and then next to it is still like a different victorian house that still stood <laughs> like it's just yeah. so different i will say that an auto garage provides uh, more utility for society than fifty thousand square feet <laughs> for some rich guy yeah yeah which in it, it's so i guess interesting to like you know, when the Clark House was built, there was nothing right. in the area. No neighbors for 14 blocks. Yeah. And then how quickly things were built up, how quickly, like, a vice district moved in, mm-hmm. how all these rich people moved in, and how quickly they moved out, and um, how things moved over to industry, mm-hmm. and then a lot of the industry was abandoned, and it's only within the past couple decades that the area this area has become residential again mm-hmm. um you know there were some residential like pockets within it but a lot of it was warehouses um or factory type things that right, have now right. been converted after being abandoned into, into breweries into breweries, condos apartments burger joints yeah yeah burger point represent Love it. Burger Point's great. Go there. Uh, if you ever go to McCormick Place or something, Burger Point's a nice little short walk away. Very close to where the brothel was. Mm-hmm. No, I've, it's strange to think of real estate as a fad, you know. as, as uh, I mean, that's a, what it is, though. That's why, like, gentrification happens. Right. A fad of a neighborhood. Like, yeah. we're going to move here because it's close to the office and we can make a little enclave. And then, oh, they invented the car. I can move wherever I want now. Well, this, this neighborhood, too, like, now is like a fad neighborhood. Yeah. It's become, like, trendy all of a sudden, <laughs> which, of course, makes rent rise, push other people out. Yeah. Like, it's... A continuous cycle of Mm -hmm. different types of gentrification happening, whether it is actually pushing people out, pushing businesses out, etc. The near south side is not what it was when we moved here. No. And it's certainly not what it was five years before we moved here. No. Yeah. It's very, very different. Even what it was five years ago, and we have lived here for like 11 years, (laughs) it is very, very different than what it was. Yeah, and in case this does make the neighborhood circuit, yes, you live in the near south side. Get over it. This is not the south loop. It's not the south loop, you people. So the prairie district is near south side. Just accept Ugh. it. Thank you. You're Gonna welcome. Gonna say this now. <laughs> south loop ends at Roosevelt. It is from Congress to Roosevelt. I would... And then Roosevelt to um, the the ex- the expressway. Was that 50, 55? Was that Whichever one. I don't drive. The The expressway is just past McCormick Place. Before you get to Bronzeville, that is near south side. Near (laughs) south side. Lake, Roosevelt, Chinatown, Bronzeville. (laughs) Little thing. It's a neighborhood. People want to wipe it off the map, and it drives me nuts. I would entertain an argument for 14th. 13th. (laughs) I would go as far as 13th. You have to include the Wabash Tap. You Uh, want Wabash Tap to be South Loop? Yeah. 
while we bicker about matters for uh, real estate agents, we're going to take a quick break and be right back with the mail. Well, that's finally settled. Yeah, we mapped out the entire city while we were gone. It took a lot of compromise, but we've come to a firm understanding and agreement. Yeah, and what? I'm mapping out the entire city. Oh, the Cl- host, the come, host. come follow along. Come join my bit. I don't know what the bit is. I, that that we determined where every single neighborhood border is through the city. Oh. The thing I just said. Oh. Okay. I get it now. So it's we got... late. I'm tired. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we got some letters. We do have. We have so many letters. Oh my goodness. Uh, first one comes from Ludovico, who is a listener from Portugal. Yeah, and said some very nice things about uh, how we handled uh, Portuguese history in our past episode, including uh, "you did what you could." Thumbs up for pronunciation, which I appreciate. Good job. That prison uh, should have been pronounced uh, Cachias. That's how the X goes. Oh. Yeah. And for uh, the prompt, which for this episode was favorite historical house, mm-hmm. Ludovico puts forward the Palacio de la Pena, uh, which is some of the most extravagant insanity the Enlightenment could offer. And with a little P.S. that in Portugal they just call fascists fachos. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, euphemistically, the other lady, because there's Lady Liberty and then the other one. That one. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Ludovico. Nairi uh, sent us an email, including uh, a cat picture of their old cat, Zamboni. Such a good name. Oh, that's such a good name for a cat. And also answered uh, the prompt of Historical House, which is the Joshua... Chamberlain Museum in Brunswick, Maine. Uh, it was the home of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. That is quite a name. Quite a guy. Um, who was a Bowdoin County or Co- Bowdoin Co- College professor, um, but it was more famously the home for Joshua Chamberlain, who became a Civil War general. Apparently, it used to be like a single-story house, uh, several feet from where it was, and then like he moved it, and then like put the first floor. <laughs> on top and the new first floor below it and just Mm -hmm. that just sounds like a lot of extra work but apparently they're doing a lot of renovations and they recently found an artifact where um it's like the the dining room table and you'd have like people carve their initials into it including like famous get or like people who are now famous like helen keller and uh i bet her penmanship was awful (laughs) um but that is pretty Cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so thank you for writing. Thanks, Nairi. And thanks, Zamboni. Zamboni, such a good name. Uh, Ian writes in once again, and Ian's favorite historical houses are the subcategory of spite houses. Any house that is built just to to peeve someone. So like the Glesner house, indirectly. <laughs> yeah, that, that wasn't intentional. No. That became a spite house. Yeah. One of Ian's favorites uh, is that the, in 1874, there were these two brothers uh, just who lived just north of Boston on the same plot of land. One of them built a house that took up nearly the entire plot, 
while his brother was away to sort of squeeze him out. But not to be outdone, the brother built this tiny sliver of a house on what was left over and then blocked all the sun from his brother's house. Nice. I think Dr. Seuss wrote a book about this and both brothers were the bad guy. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. The second house is still standing and is now known as the Skinny House. That's pretty cool. Thanks, Ian. Sean sent us an email and some dog pictures. Oof. We just love animal pictures. Uh, they are a first-time writer, but long-time listener. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're answering some other prompts. So best pirate is Guybrush Threepwood. Yeah. Uh, who you tell me is from a video game. And then favorite detective is Inspector Zenigata. Sure. Uh, from the Lupin the Third series, which you tell me is anime. I'm so glad you're here, because sometimes <laughs> I'd just be like, oh, that must be some cool historical thing, and then I'd be no, so wrong. it's a video game I haven't played and an anime I haven't watched. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but thank you so much uh, for writing in, Sean, and for listening. Yeah, and thanks for shouting out that uh, you, you enjoyed hearing some of my guest spots on other people's shows. Yeah. Uh, uh, like... I've done a few episodes of the F Plus, including F Plus Live 6, uh, which is now up, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm in parts one and two of the three parts. Very cool. Uh, And very recently, I was on yet another Alka Hollywood episode. Yeah. Uh, We did one not too long ago, the two of us, but this time it was just me. Yeah. Talking about Looney Tunes back in action. Oh, yeah. I would have hated it. Because of Brendan Fraser? Yeah, I hate Brendan Fraser. So much. He ruins everything. James writes in again uh, to give us a story that involves two historical places in uh, his native Oshkosh, Wisconsin. We learned so much about Oshkosh, Wisconsin from James. We do. I did not know. I just thought like... It's happening. Like, pants. Oshkosh is bopping. The Payne Art Center and Gardens is a museum, an art gallery... Uh, etc. that was originally meant to be a residence for a lumber baron and his wife. Uh, construction began in 1927, but uh, due to the Depression, it wasn't finished until after World War II, and it never was used as a residence. Workers threatened to bomb the place if the pains, uh, if the owners tried actually moving in. So they made it a, a non-profit organization center. Uh, next door was the Schreiber House, built by uh, an Oshkosh architect who also designed Wisconsin's pavilion for the 1893 World hey. Columbian Exhibition uh, for the family of the Schreibers. So the Payne wanted to expand their parking lot, uh, but didn't have enough room, and they couldn't tear down the Schreiber House because it is also historical uh, uh, dealio. So they tried to move the house somewhere else. They sold the house for $1, and the stipulation that the buyer would have to move the house uh, wherever it was to be moved on their own dime. And uh, that offer was taken. The house was moved uh, and sits a block away. The Payne house has its parking lot. (laughs) Thanks, James. Final gamer sent us an email. Uh, First off with a special request. Uh, for their dad, or from their dad. Penultimate uh, gamer, yes. Uh, <laughs> I've used that before. Da- Daddy gamer. Yeah. Uh, that they would love to hear some more 
science history episodes. I'm not sure if the next episode will count. So maybe, maybe, maybe. you're getting what you want. It depends on how strictly you define it. Finally, Gamer's favorite historical house is probably the Winchester Mystery House, mm-hmm. as it is fascinatingly absurd. I was waiting for this one to come up. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, according to tabloids of the late 19th century, Sarah Winchester, the wife of William Wirt Winchester, that's too many W's, had a spirit medium channeling her dead husband, who said to travel west and build a home for herself and the spirits of those who had been killed by Winchester rifles. She did that. But others also <laughs> claim it was just like a hobby to cure her depression and she got a little out of hand with it. Yeah. Uh, so the house has an earthquake-proof floating foundation, stairs that lead nowhere, weirdly angled doorways, areas of the house that were just built and then abandoned with nothing in them, uh, windows that look into other rooms, uh, and it also has cutting-edge technology of the time, elevators, steam-enforced air heating, uh, indoor toilets and plumbing. She was also <laughs> obsessed with the number 13. Mm-hmm. So there were 13 bathrooms. There were s- special chandeliers that held 13 candles. Drain covers had 13 holes in the sinks. Uh, wall hooks were in multiples of 13. There's <laughs> a lot of intense thought there. And just recently last year, they discovered a whole nother room no one knew about before in the attic. <laughs> well, who goes in the attic? A- apparently, she did. Because there's a Victorian couch and a pump organ and a sewing machine up there? Yeah. <laughs> so they should. Uh, thank you, Final Gamer. Thank you. Will writes in and mentions the uh, Winchester Mystery House as well. But in addition, Will's favorite uh, historical house close to their own house is Mont Delancey Homestead near Wanden. It's been restored and was originally built when the area was colonized in the 1800s. And now it's a historical museum. Uh, On a personal note, it was built by Will's great-great-great-grandfather. Hey! And uh, I want to give a shout out to Will's friend, Jem. Hi, Jem. Hi. Thanks for listening to Will recommending you listen to the show. Yeah. (laughs) And thanks to Will for writing. Uh, Miriam sent us an email, uh, and they are a fairly new listener who is very super cool and wonderful friend. Ashley told them to listen to us. Yay. And they did it for a while, but then they watched Riverdale, and then their friend... Ashley, who's really awesome, said, hey, you should listen to Sex Archie. Yay! Listen to that. And now they're listening to History Honeys. Double yay. And they also listen to Gextra Life. All the yays. You, you just got it all covered, man. <laughs> uh, their favorite historical house is... Oh, you decided to take the one with the Welsh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to say that. How do you say that? Plasnud? Uh, Plasnude? That's actually what I was going to try. Okay. I don't know if that's it, though. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, a house where Lady Eleanor Butler and Sarah Posenby ran away together in 1780. And it's not certain what was the nature of their relationship. We can guess. We can guess. Um, but it's a very popular place to visit in Wales. And it's a pretty cool story about two ladies rejecting their expected roles in society. Mm-hmm. And having a, a lesbian commune out in the hills. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds Th- great. Thanks, Miriam. Thank you. Peter decided to go uh, a little off script with his favorite historical house 
and uh, wants to talk about House Habsburg, all of them weirdo inbred nobles throughout Europe who, who made very dumb decisions and had very hideous faces. Yeah. So thank you very much, Peter. Sarah sent us a picture of uh, something they found at the uh, a New York Fairground Circus Museum, mm-hmm. uh, which is a picture of Jojo the dog-faced boy and brings up the question, is it a friend of JJ the horse-faced horse? You did say that JJ ran away to join the circus. I you did. You did say I that. Did. <laughs> uh, I believe Jojo, however, came much later after mm-hmm. JJ's life. Didn't you also say that JJ is immortal? Maybe. (laughs) It's been a long time. Thanks, Sarah. Alex and Faye write in yet again uh, and gave us three pictures of their kitty cat. Cute kitty. So, like, chin is a different color. It's so cute. So, catching up a bit on prompts. Uh, favorite pirate is Captain Henry Morgan, a Welshman, who uh, wound up in Jamaica and was privateering against the Spanish Armada. Got arrested, shipped to London to appease the Spanish, and as punishment, became governor of Jamaica. (laughs) His treasure hoard shows up as a bit of a MacGuffin in the Bond novel Live and Let Die. And of course, he has that rum named for him. Uh, but Faye's favorite pirate is, of course, Sir Francis Drake, who uh, infuriated the Spanish so much that his bounty in today's money was $8 million. Whoa! Now, Faye did part of her university degree on historic houses, so picking a favorite one of those is a tricky one, especially since the UK has so very many to choose from. So Upwork House uh, was restored after a fire in the 1980s, by training up a new generation in old crafting skills such as sealing plaster work and casting historic chimneys. That's really cool. And then Chatsworth House, uh, best known for being Mr. Darcy's house in uh, the Colin Firth Pride and oh. Prejudice. I got excited. I got really, really, really excited. It's, and then I got a huge letdown. I know. It's not your preferred Pride I and don't, Prejudice. I don't care about that one at all. Alex's favorite is Arundel Castle, although a castle may or may not be a house. It is still the family home of the Duke of Norfolk, and a sprawls along the hill. So thanks very much, you two. HT sent us an email with a lot of prompts to answer. So Long time catch-up from yeah, HT. Good catch-up here. So, uh, favorite historical building, the real-life Overlook Hotel from The Shining. Uh but they uh, apparently have a lot of um, movie props inside from The Shining and other movies. Which oh, is yeah. Cool. Favorite superhero would be Rocket Raccoon. Because <laughs> uh, he's a pretty complex guy. Yeah. Which is very true. I'm a big fan of Rocket. And I love how he finds a family with Groot and everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Made me cry. Made me cry. Um, I'm amazed that Bradley Cooper lost so much weight and height for that role. And grew so much hair. So much hair. <laughs> favorite movie is that about Zootopia that it went through like four completely different versions before the final film huh. uh, apparently it was originally a spy film full of talking animals starring a rabbit named Jack Savage if you want something that was originally a spy film with talking animals starring a rabbit you can check me out on alcohol we're talking yeah, about Looney yeah. Tunes back in action 
Well, then it became a movie about a city where all the predator species were forced to wear shock collars, and Nick Wilde ran a speakeasy where predators could take off their shock collars and ride like roller coasters and get their hearts racing and other activities. <laughs> and that was the idea for a long time, but then they were like, man, this is pretty creepy about the shock collars, so maybe we should like get rid of that, but then it didn't really have a story and so then, like, the last year of development, apparently, it became about Judy. what it did. Yeah. And Judy. And, and like... Intersectional identities. Yes! <laughs> uh, apparently, there was a really cool uh, documentary about the making of Zootopia called Imagining Zootopia um, that might be available on YouTube. Um, and HT suggests checking it out. Yeah. Um, also, they want to give a plug for their own podcast, uh, Toontown Public Works. Uh, HT and their, a couple of their friends are watching cartoons that are public domain, having a, a, a fun time about cartoons. It feels nice to help inspire people to be creative. Yes. To, to make things for the world. Yes, because they did say that they, they got some inspiration from yeah. us, you, yeah. me, I, I guess us. Probably. Maybe. I don't know. So thank you, HT, and everyone should check out uh, Toontown Public Works. Mm -hmm. And that's all of our letters that's for this episode. Woo! Woo! Those just kept, like, coming. I kept getting notifications. I was like, oh my gosh, they never stop. Which is, like, great. It's great. It's just like last time we didn't have that many. So if you want to send in a letter for next time, where yeah. those go? Uh, those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And feel free to give us a question, give us a story, or whatever you, you might want to have read on the air, mm -hmm. including our prompt for next episode. Yeah, what is that? I'd like to hear about everyone's favorite alien. Ooh! Yeah. Ooh. I know yours. What's mine? Stitch. Yeah. <laughs> can you do the voice? It's a mama. It's so good. <laughs> and again, those emails go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And while you're you're checking us out, maybe you just want to follow what we're up to or drop us a quick line. And a great place for that is Facebook, is Twitter, is our Instagram. Mm -hmm. And those are at historyhoneys. Nice and simple. Mm -hmm. You have a new Instagram. I do. Or I should say the dog has an Instagram. Yeah, our puppy now officially has an Instagram. It is Moki, M-O-K-E-Y, underscore, the dog. And it's adorable. You should follow. You should go look <laughs> at it. It's pretty cute. Uh, Mark Soloff is still seeking pre-orders for that Ink Shares contest for the silent scream of Melania Trump. Dexter Life videos. Yeah, the videos the are going up The 24-hour streams are being broken up, and it is they are going up on YouTube. Um, so if you missed it and you're interested in watching us play video games, uh, <laughs> mostly other people, because I do really bad and I don't get very far in, um, and I swear a lot, but um, if you're interested in that, you can uh, definitely find those online, and we are, we are still open for donations mm -hmm. until the end of the year. Currently, we are sitting at $32,000. Ah, for... we're at $32,015. Oh, I didn't know we got another fifteen. we We've broken past. Oh, well, we are sitting there currently, and uh, all that money, again, is going to Hurley Children's Hospital. Hospital in Flint, Michigan, and it will be donations are accepted till the end of the year. Mm -hmm. They will get all of that money, which will help them help kids. So check the show notes for the uh, YouTube playlist for that archive. 
They're going up at a rate of two hours every other day. Mm -hmm. So when this episode goes up, you'll get the first quarter, the first six hours available for you. Soon, the whole day will be up by before too long. Yeah, I guess I guess that's that. So what we need to do is remind everyone to give us a rating or review. Uh huh. Uh, be on on their podcast listening mm-hmm. way of choice on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, those help people find us mm-hmm. another, a lot. So another great thing you can do is tell a friend. Uh, be like. Uh, Miriam's awesome, cool, wonderful friend, Ashley. Or be like Will, who has a cool, wonderful, awesome friend, Jem. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, maybe you'll get shout-outs from us by your friends. hmm Family members. Family members. Uh, the, the customers at your coffee shop, because you're a barista. Barista! And... Before you know it, uh, Riverdale is coming back right around the corner, mm-hmm. which means Sex Archie is coming back to its weekly schedule yes. right around the corner. Yes, we have we have one more off-season episode coming out soon, and then we'll be mm-hmm. back on that weekly schedule. It's going to be our season one recap and season two primer, where we talk about what you need to know, uh, what we think might happen, and what mm-hmm. we're looking out for. It's... Uh, You'll be able to listen to that episode and skip everything before it. It's a perfect jumping on point. Yeah, exactly. So definitely uh, check that out. Mm -hmm. So with that, I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And history's better with with your honey.